And Dick, it is good to have you back. Nice to have you back. Uh, um, Rick had reminded me that also uh, the giving for the Deacons Fund is today. Uh, if you want to give a little extra out of your normal giving, it goes in the box in the back, back there for the Deacons Fund. And I would suggest that that goes to help out the church body where people need help. I would I would take it. So uh, please give to that also. So thank you, Rick, for reminding me of that. And then uh, next week for Sunday School, um, Chad's going to teach. So we're going to go with that. Does that sound good? <laughs> so uh, I'll have a backup just in case you don't do that, okay? <laughs> but thank you, everybody, for being here. And uh, I just want to thank you all for uh, being here for this uh, the, the, the study of these attributes. Uh, they've, they've been uh, amazing attributes to look through scripture and just be like, wow, we got a, we have an amazing, amazing God that we come and we worship. And um, so with that, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll get started into what I have for us today. Father, we thank you that you are so great and you are mighty and there was none other than you. Father, we praise you and thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you, through him, through his death, have washed us white as snow. Father, we're thankful that we can come into your presence and praise you. That, Father, that the veil, the veil is rent. Jesus' death, he tore the veil from top to bottom that that separated us from you and through worship, we come into your presence. We come into the very throne room of God, Lord. What privilege we have because of Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would see just how precious this is. So, Father, I just ask that you would be with us today. Again, Lord, I always come and ask that your spirit would convict us where we need to be convicted and that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged for the purpose of you being glorified in everything that we say and do. So please, Father, do this for your name's sake. Amen. So the title today is Worthy of Worship. And as we looked at the attributes of God, as we looked at all of his attributes, well, we looked at a few of his attributes. It's not all of his attributes. But the attributes that we have looked at, they should, uh, they should move our theology, which our theology is our knowledge of God, right? They should move that theology to a point of doxology where it's worship. Where our theology informs our doxology that when we come to worship God, we come to worship one who is infinitely holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. This is who we come to worship. And knowing that theology should affect that. So look at Psalm 95 with me really quick. As the psalmist writes, starting with verse 1, this is what he says. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. 
Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with song of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. This is what we do. We come into the presence and we make a joyful noise. We sing praises to God. Now, praises is just not only in song, but we give praises to him for our week, for our life, for our things that are happening with us. We, we praise him for these things. And so how we come to God in worship is important. So first of all, <coughs> what does worship mean? What does worship mean? Worship simply means to bow down. It's to bow the knee. That's what it means. That's what worship means. Now, we worship something in our life. Everybody worships something or someone, right? We have people that could be worshipped, right? Uh, The celebrities like to be worshipped. Musicians like to be worshipped. I would probably think that Uh, We have to be careful when we talk about celebrity pastors that we are not worshiping celebrity pastors. That John MacArthur is not who I worship or John Piper is not who I worship or Alistair Begg is not who I worship, but they are men that I come alongside with to worship with a holy God. We have to be careful, but we can worship many things. We can worship our TV. Do we bow down to our TV? See, Those are called idols, and we can worship idols. We see that when we have Buddha dolls, right? People come and they they lay flowers before the Buddha doll, or they burn incense before a Buddha doll. But that's just a, a statue, right? The statue has eyes, but it doesn't see. The statue has ears, but it doesn't hear. The statue has a mouth, but it doesn't speak. You see, when we come and we worship God, we come and we worship one who is all-seeing, who is all-hearing, and who is all-speaking. And when he speaks, it's powerful. As he speaks the universe into creation, as he creates through his word. So how we come to him, how we bow our knee to him, we are to bow our knee to him, but we are to come to him humbly. It's a humble worship that we come to him with. Listen to what Moses says in Exodus 34, 5. Now, to just give you context, this is the second time Moses has gone up to the, onto the mountain. And he's going with the stone tablets. And listen to what, 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 what happens in Exodus 34, 5 through 8. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And the response was, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and worshiped. Moses subordinated himself to the one who ultimately and infinitely is superior than himself. Now we're talking about Moses. Moses is huge in the Jewish faith. He is massive. He was the one who brought 
the Israelites out of Egypt. He led them out of Egypt. He was God's instrument. He was looked at. He was probably put on a pedestal. And yet when God comes and reveals his glory to Moses, Moses quickly bows his knees, he bows his head, and he worships. Just as we have seen through these attributes, God has come, and through his word, he has revealed to us his glory, his majesty, and his splendor. Our response should be the same. We quickly bow the knee to him. This is worship to God. This is the true, and we should bow our knees. Now, is it true of you? That's the question I ask. Do you quickly bow the knee to who God is and his greatness? Do we do this? No true worshiper can stand proudly or arrogantly in the presence of the awesomeness of God. Let me repeat that. No true worshiper can stand proudly or arrogantly in the presence of the awesomeness of God. We bow the knee. Philippians, that was Philippians in our call to worship. It was Philippians chapter 2 is what, is what we, were, we were talking about. And it says that at one time, there's going to be a time when all men and women on the earth, in heaven, and under the earth will bow the knee to Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means one thing. That means we will either bow now to Christ and his sovereignty, or you will bow then to his kingship and sovereignty. But either way, you and I will bow the knee. We will bow the knee in worship of who he is. So the interesting thing is, is that in the Old Testament, this is what makes our worship very precious to us. In the Old Testament, God had the tent of the meeting, right? The, t- the tabernacle. And once a year, God would descend into the Holy of Holies. This was the Shekinah glory that descended onto the, onto the temple, into the temple. And the high priest, the high priest is the only one that could enter in to the Holy of Holies. And with that, he had to enter in with blood, to put on the mercy seat is what he had to do. And that time, he was the only one that could enter in. But you and I, when we come to worship God, we enter into the very throne room. We go through the veil, who is Christ, into that throne room, and we worship God. We worship him. It's just not one person going in, but we worship him. So God is approachable in our worship. We are able to approach God in our worship. And this is interesting because 1 Timothy 6.16 says this, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So now the question is, how do I approach one who dwells in unapproachable light? How do we do that? Well, we do it one way, through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the veil we go through. Jesus is the one we come to and we go into the presence of God through Jesus. Jesus is the one who has made the way for us to enter into the throne room. Now, how has Jesus done this? Listen to Hebrews 10, 19, and 20. Therefore, brothers... 
since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We enter into the holy of holies through Jesus Christ, through his blood. This is what he has done. He is our ultimate high priest who brings us into a pure and holy and undefiled worship of God. This is what Jesus does. John 14, 6 says it this way. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way that we come to God except through Christ. He is it. He is it. All other worship is not worship unless we come through Christ into the presence of God. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has not only provided, but has paved the road for us to, to God. Again, in Hebrews 10, 22, it says this, Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. This is that sacrifice. This is Jesus' sacrifice imputed to us, given to us. This is the righteousness given to us. And so we confidently enter in. We draw near with a true heart because of Jesus. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, <coughs> that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what Jesus has done for us. This access is possible. This access is possible to God because Jesus has taken away our, our sin. Right? Jesus has taken away our sin. That's that imputed righteousness and that we have access into God to worship him. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. That righteousness that Jesus had, that perfect life that Jesus had, that perfect obedient life, that sinless life that Jesus had, we have. This is why we enter in, why we have this access, because Jesus has taken care of it. Colossians 2.12 reminds us of that. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's the cross work of Jesus Christ that gives us access to the Father to worship him in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, and in all of his splendor. Jesus not only gives us access, but he makes God knowable in worship. He makes God knowable in worship. He says this, that eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus prays this, and this is eternal life. He tells us what it is. Eternal life is that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. He makes God knowable. 
When we look at our Bibles and we read our Bibles, it is the Holy Spirit that reveals to us who God is. It makes us knowable. God says that the greatest thing for us to know is Him. The biggest thing that we can boast in is that we know Him. And Jeremiah says that in Jeremiah 9. He says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understand and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Wow, the Lord delights, brothers and sisters, when we boast in Him. When we boast of His glory, when we boast of His power, His might, His wisdom. Not ours. This is what God delights in. This is what brings a smile to God's face is when we boast in Him. And when we boast in Him, and when we tell others of Him and how great He is, that's worship. That's us bowing the knee. That's us bowing the head in worship of who He is. Because we are saying one thing, there is one that is greater than me. And we all think we're great. We all want to have control. We all want to have all power. But when we boast of who God is, we say there is one greater than me. Jesus makes God known to us. If we want to see what God is like, if you want to see truly what he looks like, read the Gospels. See what Jesus does, what Jesus says, how Jesus reacts. And that's how God reacts. Jesus makes him known. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is the one who reveals God. When we see Christ, we see God in the flesh. Paul tells us nothing can compare to knowing Jesus. Nothing compares. This is worship, brothers and sisters. This is why I'm bringing this to us, that God is to be supremely valuable, more valuable than anything else. He is to consume our thoughts. He is to consume our hearts. He is to consume all of our actions because he is infinitely valuable. But do we see him as infinitely valuable? Paul says it this way, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. We can just stop there and preach a whole sermon. I count everything as lost, everything, as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish means dung, garbage. That's what it means. He counts everything as dung, as garbage, that he may gain Christ. 
Does your heart speak that way, brothers and sisters? Are our hearts that way that we count everything in our, in our lives, everything as loss, as putrid-smelling dung so that we may gain Christ, so that we may know Christ better, that we may worship Christ better. Do we count all things as lost or do we have everything that competes with that, that competes with our affections, competes with our desires? Henry Skugel puts it this way, the worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its affections. If your soul is, is gripped and fascinated by a television, that is the value you put on your soul. But if your soul is riveted and gripped and in awe of a beautiful, glorious God, then the value of your soul is infinite because you put it in what is infinite. Paul continues in verse 9 and he says, And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That was Paul's goal in life. In the earlier in Philippians 3, he talks about all these things that he would have confidence in the flesh, that he was a Pharisee, that according to the law, he was blameless, that he was of the tribe of Benjamin and he was uh, circumcised on the eighth day. All these things, all his righteousness that he looked at and he says at the end of it that that doesn't count as anything, but what he wants is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So you may be like him in his death. This is worship to Jesus, brothers and sisters. This is worship to God because he is valuable. Is God worthy of our worship? We have to ask that question. Jesus has made God known. Jesus has made accessible to God. But is God worthy enough for our worship? Is he valuable enough for your worship? Is he beautiful enough for your worship? Or is there something else of more value and more beauty that you worship? Is God worthy of that worship? And the answer is yes, he is worthy of that worship. And when we come here every Sunday and we sing songs and we hear his word preached, we are saying that very thing. We are saying, Lord, you are worthy of my worship. What about in your private time with God? Do you sit and do you pray? And when you read, are you captivated by his word that you sit there and you say, Lord, you are worthy of all of my worship. You are of utmost value, and I want to worship you and you alone. Is he worthy of worship? And he is worthy of worship. How is he worthy of worship? By one, he's conquered all of our enemies. He's conquered all of our enemies. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has conquered our enemies. Our enemy was what? Sin. The world. The flesh. The devil. He has conquered all of our enemies. He leads us in triumph, brothers and sisters. Is he worthy of your praise? Yes, because he is your victor. He is the one who's won the battle. He has won the war. This is why he is worthy of all of our praise. He's worthy of all of our praise because he has captivated our hearts, because he is captivating. He is brilliant. And we see this in Revelation, where in Revelation, we praise his worthiness. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is a scene that John sees in heaven. This is when all the masses, this is when the church is gathered around the throne of God and they see the Lamb. And what do we say? Worthy are you, Lord. Worthy are you to receive all honor and praise. This is what we will be saying in heaven. We talked about what the music will be like in heaven in Sunday school, but this is what we will be saying. This is what we will be singing. We will be singing, worthy are you to receive honor and glory and power to the Father in heaven. And not only to the Father, but Jesus will be praised just as much in heaven. Listen to Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. And they sang a new song saying, brothers and sisters, this is what we'll be singing. I don't know if there's going to be electric guitars and drums, but I know this much. This is what we will be singing. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you were made, and you made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. That is the same for us now. The angels are showing us the worthiness of the lamb who was slain. We today can do the same thing and show Christ how worthy he is by our worship that he is worthy to receive all the same things. Let the angels cry out. In heaven, God is praised. And in heaven, Jesus' worth is shown. Is he worthy to you, brothers and sisters? Is he worthy of your worship? Is he worthy of your praise? Is he worthy of your honor? Is he worthy of these things? He is worthy of these things. He is worthy because of his cross. He's worthy because of his cross work. As we studied these attributes, we see every single attribute that we've studied in the cross of Jesus Christ. We see all of them. 
and we understand the cross. We know that Jesus went to a cross to die, to die for our sin, for the wrath of God to be poured out upon him for us. He goes and he dies our death. He takes our punishment. He takes our condemnation so that we won't have to bear it. He takes our place. He's our substitute. Yes, he's worthy of all of our praise. The cross of Christ shows the beauty of the holiness of God as he deals with our sin. God is so holy that he can't look on sin. He can't let sin go by the wayside. And yet we see his holiness on full display. His infinite holiness, the beauty of his holiness in display as he pours his wrath on Christ at the cross. We see that he is supremely sovereign in his control of the cross. We see that he is goodness towards us in the cross. His infinite goodness towards you and I in the cross of Jesus. As we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, do you see God's holiness in this? Do you see his goodness in this? God displays his mercy and his grace that we don't deserve in the cross of Christ. You see his attributes becoming there. And it's got to be infinite, brothers and sisters, because he is infinite. This is hard to grasp, but our sin is not something that is temporary to God. It was an infinite sin. And so all of his attributes are infinitely seen in the cross of Christ. He demonstrates that he has a loyal, committed, compassionate, infinite love for us as Christ is our substitute. He magnifies his power. We see his infinite power in the, in, in the cross of Christ. We see that the depths of his knowledge in the cross of Christ. Because that would be my plan. Wouldn't that be your plan? Wouldn't your plan be that all your enemies that surround you and your plan's going to be this, I'm going to go die for them. That wouldn't be my plan. I don't know about you all, but that's not my plan. But we see this infinite knowledge We see this infinite knowledge in the cross. We look into the mind of God in the cross and we see this infinite knowledge of how beautiful this knowledge is that in his plan, he takes care of our sin because he knows we can't. This is his loyal, committed, compassionate love towards you and I. Not only that, but the all-consuming wrath of his presence as he pours his anger out is seen in the cross. We didn't study that attribute. We didn't study that one. But God being all-loving, we have to understand something. God is all-wrathful too. We hinted on it a little bit last, last week when we looked at the presence of God in hell. But he is all wrathful. And all of that wrath, that infinite wrath, brothers and sisters, we have to get the pictures with these words. This infinite wrath. This wrath that nothing can contain. 
that we can look at for you and I was poured out on Christ. Think of it this way. If you were the only person in the world who had ever sinned and you only did one sin, that infinite wrath would still have been poured out on Christ for that one sin. Oh, brothers and sisters, he is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. So today, so today as we come to the table, as we look at the bread and we look at the cup, I got seven things that I want you to think about. That we would be captivated by his beauty in the cross. That we would see the splendor of his kingship in the cross. The thief on the cross did, didn't he? One of the thieves did, right? We, we, we read about that. One of the thieves, Christ, in Isaiah 52, in Isaiah 52, Isaiah prophesies that Christ wasn't even recognizable. He was marred. He was beaten so bad that you couldn't even recognize that he was a man. And yet the thief on the cross sees a king and he says, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus says, you will be with me. He sees the splendor of his throne. Do you see that? When we come to the table and we remember Jesus' death, do you see the splendor of his throne? Are you enthralled with his goodness? Are you riveted by his grace? And are you consumed with his love? Do you stand in awe of his power and knowledge and presence? And are you bowed low in worship as his eternal, infinite worthiness is praised? Brothers and sisters, as we come to the the table, I want us to take a few minutes to repent of any sin that you have. But I also want us to see this warning that Paul gives. In 1 Corinthians 11, this is what Paul says. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We have to be sure we examine ourselves. If you're an unbeliever, don't take this. It's not for you. But as believers, be sure when you take the body and the blood of Christ, as we memorialize his death, be sure that you do not do this in an unworthy manner. Be sure your heart is pure and right before God. So take a few minutes. Would the elders come forward as we pass this out to repent of your sin and be right with God.